Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro physique athlete, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I have Menno Hensemans back on the show. He is a very well-known coach, author, and uh, author of a personal training course, and as well as scientific researcher in the field of fitness. And today we're going to be talking about fat loss as well as Menno's last book, The Science of Self-Control, which is going to be a really interesting topic today. Thanks for being on the show. Pleasure as always. So yeah, this is going to be aimed a bit towards more general audience. More so, I feel like I feel like on this podcast, I talk a lot toward you know more of the advanced bodybuilder, where you're kind of assuming this person is like a robot and will like hit everything absolutely perfectly, can wake up every day and you know have everything weighed on a scale and not miss a beat, but. I think that uh, there's a lot of people who are just kind of getting started with the whole thing and are don't know how how to start. And I was thinking we could bring a lot of value to those people. And I think a lot of people, even bodybuilders, will benefit from this kind of chat about psychology of dieting and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I was thinking just to open up, Menno, when you are taking on a beginner client and say they are setting up their first cut, What's kind of your approach in terms of, you know, setting up the diet? Well, one big decision at the start is whether you're going to do macro tracking or at libitum dieting. And typically I will err on the side of macro tracking, especially if someone's highly motivated because any phase of macro tracking will be incredibly useful for mm -hmm. the future of any of their dieting success, whether they're going to track their macros or not, because it creates calorie awareness and Another big decision is that you have to you have to decide how all in you want to go. And typically, research finds that it's good to err on the side of going quite all in, like being quite aggressive with how many lifestyle changes you want to make. And the more motivated someone is, the more changes they can sustainably make in their lifestyle at once. But it's generally good to make big changes because research finds that when they make short-term success, that creates essentially faith in the process. It shows them, okay, if I do these things, I get the desired result. And then the entire discussion simply revolves around how am I going to do these things rather than is it actually working? What if this alternative approach, yada, yada, yada. So that is really useful. And it's just motivating to get short-term results, of course. So I, I generally like going quite all in and treating them quite as uh, maybe already a sort of intermediate lifter and just throwing them in the deep a little bit in terms of and then seeing you know how are they doing if they're really struggling of course they need more help maybe say okay let's focus on these things first but i do think a lot of coaches go to the baby step too much you know and there's good research on speaking of diet psychology mm -hmm. the pygmalion effect which is that if you treat someone in a certain way that also influences their self-perception so this is like a classic from uh, classroom experiments where they find that if you treat a student as a bad student or as a student that, look, we know that uh, Johnny's never going to uh, graduate, but he, he has to sit in <laughs> with the rest of the class, then Johnny internalizes that and Johnny thinks, well, okay, I'm a bad kid, I'm a problem kid, and then he's going to act like a problem kid. And it's the same with dieting when you have a client and if you're like, well, okay, you, you know, we know that you're you're super weak. We're we're not gonna be too difficult now. Just baby stepping one at a time, and they're gonna mm -hmm. be like, oh, I'm gonna have all these problems. This is gonna be super difficult. Whereas, if you're saying, look, I know you're a competent individual. You've you know you've achieved good things in your life. You're you're an adult. That's this is how we're gonna do it, and we're gonna do it as best as you can. And then we'll see how it goes. And then if they struggle, then they're gonna be like, oh, okay. So let's we're running into these issues. We're gonna fix these, and that's what I'm here for. This is the coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I really like that about treating people like they're really serious because, yeah, I definitely have noticed that uh, when you kind of half-ass things or go into things with a, like, oh, we're just kind of playing around here, that you end up not being as committed. So it's interesting to hear about that kind of line of research. What do you like to approach uh, the diet in terms of, like, diet plan versus if it fits your macros approach? Like, would you give them a, how structured will you start them off with? I always emphasize food choices. I think that's very important. 
if you're going with an ad libitum approach, maybe you, you only do food choices, but typically I will give macros and food choices. And if they're like a rank beginner, I may just tell them, look, stay under the calorie budget, try to go over the protein minimum. So basically you have a minimum amount of protein that you need to get in and there is a maximum amount of calories. And that's, that's it. You have to stay somewhere within these ranges. So get your protein in without exceeding your calories. And then you give them a lot of food choices. And I really emphasize that those are the key because behaviorally speaking, changing the food choices and changing what someone perceives as their internal menu, what you know, foods that they eat, that is the key to long-term success. Whether they can operate on a certain set of macros, that is more the the behavior, the skill that they're doing right now, but that's not the actual behavior change because they can essentially short-term suffer and just eat less of whatever they were eating before and add some scoops of whey protein, but that's not gonna lead to sustainable lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in terms of the, if it fits your macros, you know, some people will talk about um, like the benefit of making decisions ahead of time, like with, you know, setting some sort of meal structure. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Definitely. I mean, meal planning is incredibly successful. There was a recent study where they essentially tried to uh, kind of disprove the benefits of meal planning and show that flexible dieting is better. And uh, I don't remember the exact details, but it was essentially one group had a meal plan. It wasn't the best meal plan, it was just like very rigid. Like, this is the plan, you have to stick to this exactly. And the other group was just given macros and some guidelines, I think, which is more how you know flexible dieting is typically practiced these days. But actually, they found the diet adherence and the psychological aspect of the diet were all very similar between groups because it's so beneficial to have a meal plan, to have structure and consistency in your diet and to have a plan so that you don't have to think about food when you're hungry. It's so beneficial that even excessive rigidity it's typically not detrimental, at least not as detrimental as not having a plan. Mm. So that, and if you look at research, even on slim fast and diet replacement products, it basically shows that even a very bad meal plan is still very beneficial. Like almost any study where they compare any type of meal plan versus not having a meal plan or any other type of intervention, the meal plan wins in terms of diet adherence. Because it's just so beneficial to have a structure, to know what you have to eat ahead of time. And like I said, not making decisions when you're hungry. The worst is when you come home after work, you don't have a plan, you're hungry, you're tired, you just want to eat something now. And then you have to decide, oh, am I going to the supermarket to buy broccoli and prepare it and cook the rice and the chicken and make that? Doesn't happen. Exactly. Or am I just going to order a pizza or grab something at the snack store next door or whatever, you know? It's just too tempting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah very valuable and definitely something that I find helps a lot when I'm in contest prep where things really get, you know, serious hunger because most of the time I don't struggle that much with hunger, but in contest prep it becomes an issue and it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. having those, you know, meals and containers all ready to go, just heat them up uh, really makes a difference. Definitely. Yeah, and then... I want to get a little bit more into kind of the psychological and self-control aspects of things. Do you have any general tips on people for dealing with hunger? Uh, a lot. <laughs> hunger awesome. management is, is, is crucial. Mm -hmm. Hunger management is one of the, the most important skills because if you look at the, the predictors of diet non-adherence of diet failure in research, hunger is quite consistently one of the top ones and very often the top one. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense that hunger is the reason that dieting is difficult. Hunger is the primary physiological stimulus that incentivizes you to eat something and now. If you weren't hungry, you could simply choose to be on any type of diet that you wanted, and it would just be a matter of execution. So hunger is the reason it's difficult. Hunger is fundamentally what, what drives you astray. It's the feeling yes. that's giving you short-term temptation to default on your long-term diet plans. And therefore, I think that hunger management is, is absolutely vital for any diet success. And it's also why food choices are so important, because one of the most important things for hunger management is food choices, not calories. Calories have surprisingly little influence on hunger. A lot of people have this idea that when they 
when they're dieting, they're in energy deficit and their body has like a, a clock or a meter or something. And it's like, oh, energy is low, therefore hunger. No, it, it's, it uses a lot of cues and many of them are actually psychological and some of them are physical to, to give you, to estimate essentially if you've eaten enough. And you can manipulate this system in large part by just having lots of nutrients and a good overall diet, lots of food, without having to go over your calorie allowance. So the, one of the big ones are high protein diet, high fiber diet, and generally unprocessed hard foods. So few liquid calories, I, I typically recommend zero liquid calories, mm -hmm. just water, coffee, tea, diet sodas if you want. And um, like I said, hard foods with, with texture, or viscosity if they're like semi-liquid foods like Greek yogurt like the thick kind that's really beneficial and foods with a low energy density so research strongly finds that you like very roughly speaking if we ignore all the psychological side we just focus on like the very basic psychology then hunger is in large part regulated by pressure receptors in the, uh, the stomach and the digestive tract mm. and it's, it's, it's like a certain amount of area that, that we have, and the more full it is, the more pressure there is on these receptors, and the greater the uh, sensory input for the brain to say, okay, we're full, literally full, like we, we don't have space anymore. Therefore, cool it with the hunger, we're done. And you can manipulate this process by just having foods with a lower energy density. Typically, you find that if you replace, for example, uh, rice with potatoes, which a lot of people think are like equivalent, but actually it's like twofold difference in energy density, you eat the same amount, but you dramatically reduce your energy intake. And if you reduce full fat meat with uh, semi-fat meat or even fully lean meat, then there's also very little difference in how people, how much food people consume. Like they still consume, say, 300 grams of the food, but they end up with a much lower energy intake. So having lower energy density foods is crucial for uh, appetite management. And then, yeah, then there are a multitude of psychological factors for more like advanced um, appetite management. But those are like the super, super basic ones like protein, fiber, low energy density, unprocessed or minimally processed foods with like actual texture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's huge. And it's interesting how I think there's this kind of public belief that, you know, the eating certain foods will make you fat. Like people will mm -hmm. say, oh, I can't touch rice because I'll, I'll blow up if I touch rice. And I think there, while the, that isn't like completely true, there is a lot of validity to food choices, as you said, where, you know, maybe taking a spoon of rice won't make you gain a lot, gain weight. But for some people, perhaps if rice is relatively high calorie density for you and doesn't, you know, you don't feel as satiated with it, you might end up eating a lot of it. Right, I like and consume a lot of calories that way rather than if you had, say, like fruit or vegetables or some other substitute. And I like that point about the texture as well, where I feel like that's a bit of an underrated point that I kind of kind of got into with contest prep, where you kind of notice that like, oh, if I eat like carrots for me are very, very satiating because they're low energy density and they take a lot of a long time to eat. You know, you're crunching mm -hmm. through them and like that chewability sort of. Yes, Peace. it's actually directly uh, related to satiety, the, the mastication. So chewing on something is, is directly related to the feeling of satiety. So there, there's research indicating that the amount of chewing itself generates a satiety signal, which is just goes to show how indirect the body is. Like it, it really has no idea how many calories you're consuming. It uses all of these super indirect signals. And funny enough, that's why chewing gum is quite mm. beneficial for yes. satiety. Because yeah, you're 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 masticating, you're, you're you're forced to chew a lot on something, and the body doesn't really realize that there's there's nothing going in. It's just programmed to okay, lots of chewing. We we must be eating a lot. Mm -hmm. Is there like an index for that, like in terms of textures of food or anything? I don't know, just a, out of curiosity, like is there maybe a list of foods that people can look up? Uh, basically, the harder the better. The harder the thicker. The better for satiety. With semi-liquid or liquid foods, there's viscosity, which but you know most people aren't really aware, and I'm also not aware of any index that indexes foods by viscosity. It's like it's like how thick it is, you know, like if you have Greek yogurt or skier, quark, whatever, and you you can turn it up upside down and it doesn't fall out because it's just so thick. 
that's yeah. highly viscous. That's that's the good stuff for satiety at least. Yeah. And if you have the stuff that's in the Netherlands, they have really good, as in tasty Greek yogurt, but it's actually not that satiating because it's it's literally indistinguishable from yogurt. So mm. the, the, the biological quark in the Netherlands, it's it's so good. Mm. It's it looks like yogurt. It tastes like yogurt. Looks like yogurt, or close to it at least. But it, as a result of that, it's actually not that satiating anymore because it's too liquid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. And I, on a related note, I guess this is pretty similar, but how about dealing with cravings? Like, say someone has a, has a huge urge for mm -hmm. ice cream. Yeah, cra cravings are a topic where there are a lot of misconceptions about. The most important thing to realize with craving is what exactly it is. And again, it's good to realize that there's no such thing as a physiological craving. Like there's nothing inside the body that says we need chocolate. You know, your body doesn't have a, a concept of chocolate. It doesn't have a concept even of um, specific foods or even uh, micronutrients, macronutrients in the form of a certain food. It just registers total inputs in some way or these processes are regulated. But basically it just registers hunger and then your mind gives that hunger a certain mental representation. So if you're like a classic example I give in the book is if you're walking through the street and you smell bread, which is literally this is why bakers make bread in a way that produces way more smell than is actually necessary to produce the bread, because, because that smell of bread, when you're hungry, is like the brain is hunger, smell of bread, oh, I want bread. So it, it's, it's a mental representation that's being filled in. Like hunger is like a gap and that needs some form of like a representation in the brain. Which, which can be anything. And that, that's what a craving is, is when that representation of your hunger is down very strong in a certain way. But you have to realize that it, it's not that food. You're just hungry, and it's that specific food that you're interested in right now. And if you're going to eat it, it often actually makes the craving worse. Mm -hmm. So typically, the best strategy for cravings, the quote I give in the book is, the best way to kill a craving is to starve it. Because... Even very restrictive diets often actually work out best in practice in contrast to the idea of um, forbidden fruit effect and, you know, you eat a bit of the chocolate and you're good. Yeah, that's good for like five minutes. Mm. And uh, it, it's, it's very much like alcohol, you know, like if you want alcohol or if you're an alcoholic or um, any kind of drug, having a little bit is not the way to, mm -hmm. to cure the addiction. You need to, you don't necessarily need to go all cold turkey, but you need a, a long-term plan to reduce your intake. And it's the same way with cravings. Like a, the best diets typically are the ones that actually restrict the food and make you not eat it. And then preferably in a way that gives you a choice rather than just being like, you cannot eat this because. Yeah, nice. I'm imagining cravings as like some little monster that you're locking in a, in a cage mm -hmm. and starving it. <laughs> and then another big thing people struggle with is snacking. How do you address that? Yeah, snacking is in, in large part a combination of appetite management and having a good plan. I think snacking is very destructive and research typically shows that it is indeed very bad for diet adherence. People that snack or let's call that eating at an unplanned time are much less successful in the long term than people that eat only at their planned times. And there's also, of course, a little bit of a discipline component here where if you people just if people are not aware that snacking is so detrimental, they can do it. Whereas if you tell them, look, you can just wait a few hours and then you can eat. And this technique is uh, very useful. Um, episodic future thinking, it's called from, um, from the psychological literature. It's also good to ward off cravings. Whereas if you want to eat something now, you actively visualize what you're going to eat next, like what your next plan is. If it's 4 p.m., you have a meal at 6 p.m., you're already hungry, then think of your meal at 6 p.m. And really think is, okay, if I come home, I have the Tupperware ready, all I have to do is put it in the microwave. I know that's good. I like it. It's nutritious, high protein. It's good for me. It's satiating. And I'm going to eat that and I'm going to be happy. And that really helps with dealing with the feeling of hunger and the cravings right now because it, it shifts your emphasis on the future and also tells you, you know, essentially what the solution already is. Whereas a lot of people have this idea of I have hunger and it's a feeling and they need to act on it. And one of the core aspects of uh, behavioral psychology and uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is that you realize that the emotions you have are just that. They're just emotions, just feelings. 
It's not something that you have to act on. If you're hungry, if you have a craving, if you want a snack, it's just that. It's your body producing a signal. It doesn't even have to be motivated by actual physical hunger. Maybe you just, like I said, smell bread. Maybe you saw a coworker eat something. Maybe you're just bored. Maybe it's something else that you're actually interested in. Your brain just creates craves some form of pleasure. Often it's not even food related. Mm. And it's it's your choice what you want to do with these emotions. You don't have to act on them. That, that the mindfulness is incredibly useful. And if you combine that with episodic future thinking and just having a plan, knowing what you're going to eat and making sure that if this happens, you also think of, okay, why am I hungry in the first place? It means, okay, if I'm hungry at 4 p.m. and I have lunch at 12, then my lunch probably needs to be more satiating. So you need to go back on these factors that we discussed earlier to see if you can make your lunch meal more satiating so that in the future you don't get that hunger. And then one last thing I'd add to that is that the big reason giving into your snacking urges is detrimental is because it entrains your biorhythm in the wrong way. Your body is used to, your body generates the sensation of hunger at predictable times when it kind of expects food or more precisely when it's entrained to eat. So if you always eat at 4 p.m., you get hungry at 4 p.m. I remember when I was like, bro, eating every three meals, because I, I had this idea that I need to eat at least six meals a day. I would eat three, every three hours on the clock. And I could literally tell the time by my level of hunger. Yep. If I was hungry, I was <laughs> like, oh, it must be three hours. And yes, it was always within 30 minutes. And this is because your, your body is just completely trainable. If you always have breakfast, you get hungry in the morning. If you never have breakfast, you lose that hunger to, to a certain extent at least. And if you snack, and if you're always going to snack, say midnight snack or a 4 p.m. snack, whatever, then your body is expecting food at that time. You're going to be hungry at that time. So you're not, you're maybe curing the short-term problem of hunger, but you're creating one for the long-term because now you're going to be hungry every time at that time. Yeah, that's hilarious because I have the exact same thing. Like the great thing about being in radiology is that for the most part, you're, you know, working with a computer so you can eat whenever you want. And, you know, I'll have my second lunch at like 4 p.m., and like mm -hmm. always at like 3.58 or like 4 p.m. on the dot, I'll be like have this huge sudden spike of hunger. Like I wasn't even hungry like 15 minutes before, but then on the dot. And the other weird thing is that if I don't eat, like if I somehow don't eat, like this last month I've been working on procedures. So I'd be sometimes I'll be doing complex stuff. Like the other day I did a vertebroplasty, which is like injecting cement into someone's spine. Um, but um, like if I somehow miss the meal, for like, if I hold it off for like 30 minutes, the hunger will actually go away. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's like your body's like, oh, where's the 4 p.m. meal? Like, well, I guess it's not coming. Yeah, that's also a super good realization for people that much of that hunger is 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 just that the entrainment of the biorhythm. So it's not really mm -hmm. that raw hunger yet. So you can actually kind of dispel it. I have it a lot in the mornings. If I wake up, especially if I haven't slept enough, I often wake up hungry. But I know that I don't need to eat. And if I just ignore it, it will go away because I'm usually not hungry at all in the mornings if I'm well rested. Yeah. And I really like what you said earlier about recognizing that hunger is is almost like this or the urge to snack. It is almost like this feeling that isn't necessarily grounded in a biological need always. And I think that people assume that when they're hungry, they like they need to eat it's it's never going to go away there's nothing they can do about it whereas when you start seeing it from like as an observer or almost mm -hmm. like detaching yourself from that feeling you realize that yeah there are other things that could be coming into play like what you said about often hunger is like or snacking or eating something is almost like this pleasure um experience that people sometimes use if they just use as a crutch or use as something to like tie them over and sometimes like I've definitely found that if I'm really bored I'll often start thinking about food even if you know I don't really need more calories yes I, I like the um, I think a lot of people have too much of the, um, the listen to your body in the most direct way and I like to tell my clients like are you gonna listen to your body or are you gonna make your body listen to you mm -hmm. because if you just listen to your body all the time, basically meaning you're going to act on your emotions instantly all the time, that's how people get fat. That's literally 
it. Like you're, if you're hungry, you see food, you want to eat it. Like the body is very primitive. We have not evolved for our modern climates of hyper palatable foods <laughs> available at our leisure. So it just, it sees pizza, it eats pizza. It's like, I'm a simple man. You know, that's, that's your body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's actually very detrimental to always listen to your body. There are certain cues that are good, but it's more like, I like to think of in general in psychology is you are inside your body and a big part of living and optimizing your body is figuring out how it's actually working and what it means. Like you have a certain feeling, okay, that it's that, it's there's a certain feeling. And then you can think, am I gonna ignore it? Am I not gonna, uh, am I gonna act on it? Am I not gonna act on it? What happens what I do? What happens if I don't? And you kind of learn how your body is actually working. And along the way, you can become better. The better you understand it, the better you can control it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you spoke a bit about eating mindfully, you know, and the power of mindfulness. Do you have any tips on that? Mindfulness is, is super important for eating. There are lots of studies that show that in general, eating less mindfully and faster results in higher energy intakes because the brain is literally processing or registering the food that you're eating. So if your brain is distracted, meaning if, if you're focusing your attention elsewhere than on the food, then the brain is literally not processing the information. It sounds almost too silly. It sounds like bro science, you know, like your, your brain is distracted, but actually it, that it literally is how it, how it goes. If you're on your phone, if you're on your laptop, multiple studies show you eat considerably more. If you're in company, if you have a, social relations, you mm. eat a lot more. Mm. And there are also predictable effects of who you're with and what, what their sort of ideas of what a normal portion is. If your portion size is, is very large, then that also creates kind of an expectation effect of how much you should be eating. Mm -hmm. If you eat faster, is at least if it's less mindful, whether eating speed per se matters, I'm not entirely convinced of, but generally in the literature, that is the trend then you, you eat more. So the, the faster and less mindfully you eat, and the more distracted you are, the more uh, you eat for the same level of satiety. And that's key because when you eat, you're not just eating to shove something into your body and then you're done. It's, it's not that mechanical, it's not biological. It's just you're eating to satisfy the feeling of hunger. That should be the goal of eating primarily. Like, mm. because uh, as we discussed, if you're not hungry anymore, then you don't have to eat. It's you're done. Then after that, if you want to eat more, you can. But it's it's just a conscious decision. But up until the point that you're still hungry, at least you're gonna be faced with either you're satisfying that feeling or you have to ignore it, which is often uh, at least causes some uh, discipline or requires some self-control, negative feelings. So essentially, the more mindful you become at eating, the more you focus on your food, savor every bite, and really, if you think about it. That is the goal of eating, right? Savoring the food. Uh, other, than, other than that, if you're not going to enjoy what you eat, then you might as well just only eat broccoli and the most healthy stuff because if you're just, you know, food is fuel, then why bother with any type of taste? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that this is, this is really exacerbated in today's culture where we have so much media at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. Like everyone is always, you know, on Netflix or like watching or on their phones while they're eating right and it's very it's easier than ever to just kind of eat distractedly definitely shifting gears a little bit more into the psychology aspect could you talk a little bit about the you know self-control with diet and how that might be manipulated sure so the self-control is another one of those things where it's, it's very important to have a model of what it is and how it works Mm -hmm. And essentially what happens when your self-control fails is that you're paying attention to something that is not causing a lot of instant gratification. And then there's a part of our brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC, that is involved in both the registering of reward and the um, focus of attention. Those things are intricately linked inside our brain. So it's very easy for us to focus on something that's providing reward. And it's a lot more difficult to focus on something that is not providing instant gratification. And self-control failure is essentially the interior cingulate cortex determining, okay, this is not doing anything for us, so let's put our attention to something else. Self-control failure is essentially very similar to boredom. It's essentially meaning that whatever you're doing now 
is not making you happier. Therefore, the brain is shifting your attention away to something else. And that almost universally means that your attention shifts from a have-to goal to a want-to goal. So you have to read something for your college. You have to follow your tax reports. Or you think that you have to um, read a book that you for history because you want to be more intellectual. Mm -hmm. And But it's not something that's inherently giving you pleasure. And therefore, the brain at some point says, uh, look, uh, that Facebook icon or that, that hamburger over there I see somebody eating, that looks mighty appetizing right now. We're going to focus our attention on that. Mm. And that's when your self-control fails, or essentially your attention wanes to the more instantly gratifying uh, thing in the environment, or even just inside your mind. Yeah, that's a that's that's a perspective I hadn't really thought about, but I I absolutely see it where when you are shifted, when you when you're when you're out of that like necessitous frame, then you that's when your mind really opens to all these kinds of little side paths towards you know things that you weren't planned to do exactly because if you are doing something and that's also what the the standard model of self-control like baumeister ego depletion model which is like that's just kind of kind of a fat inside your brain and when you're exerting self-control it's just slowly emptying and when it's gone your self-control is is out you're in ego depletion that the model cannot explain why if you're doing something that you love or if you're a video game, something that's very addictive, or a conversation with a really good conversation partner, so maybe your loved one, that is not going to cause your attention to just wait all of a sudden in the same time period. You can be in, in flow, as psychologists call it, and you can focus on that for basically indefinitely. And there's no self-control failure in that point. So essentially motivation and self-control failure are intricately linked. If you're doing something you like, something you love, or more generally, something that your brain is perceiving as rewarding, there is no such thing as self-control failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that yeah, that speaks to you know the importance of having a lot of you know keeping busy and like putting a lot of filling your life with a lot of things that you enjoy doing that uh, can take your mind off things when you're dieting. Definitely. People then talk about discipline. Um, can discipline be trained? So it, it actually cannot. There's a lot of direct research on self-control and discipline, even to the point of kind of artificial studies where they literally just try to uh, have people do very effortful self-control, discipline requiring tasks, stroop tasks, puzzles, things that typically result in very quick self-control failure because they require a lot of attention and really not fun to do. Think of like complicated mental puzzles that really don't achieve any purpose, counting backwards from a thousand to one, uh, just boring stuff that is very difficult to keep your attention on. And universally, pretty much the research finds that any improvements are very specific to the trained task and they don't convey over to any other type of task. Mm. It makes perfect sense because as we discussed, self-control failure is not this, this vat that is emptying then you could think if self-control is like a muscle, which it's not, that's the old outdated model, then you could make the muscle bigger or you could make the fat bigger. But there's no need for that because there's something that's emptying. It's just a matter of the perception of reward that is um, uh, causing your attention to shift to another goal. So there's also no need to train your self-control. That is the upside of it. And typically it works better to cultivate habits and discipline in the sense of having a plan, having habits, and as a result of that, not needing to rely as much on self-control as trying to literally train the self-control. Yeah, this yeah, this was something that piqued my curiosity because I feel that it's very it's this very like entrenched notion that you know discipline is is like this you know um, you have this like jar of it that you like mm -hmm. can dole out but then you can also increase the size of the jar kind of thing where yeah, if yes mm -hmm. if, if you think about it if willpower worked like that like discipline was something that would train with like a muscle then you would expect people that have a lot of dieting failure experience to have insanely strong willpower and self-control but you, you consistently see that 
it doesn't work. Just just trying harder doesn't work. You need a better plan. You need habits. You need to change your lifestyle. Just trying and then trying again, it doesn't work. That's why we see the yo-yo dieting, all of these phenomena. If you're not dieting the smart way, it's just really, really hard. And it's not going to be sustainable for most people without sustainable lifestyle change, like making your diet more satiating, implementing these tips that we're discussing right now. If you're not doing these things, you're going to fail over and over and over again because evidently your self-control is not becoming more powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is definitely something where, yeah, in contest prep, you find yourself like you rely a lot on your habits and kind of the structure of things. You'll see all these success gurus and maybe other athletes talking about discipline and how like you have to train it like a muscle. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute their success to then? I think that there is, because self-control is not inherently like physically limited, and there is a lot to the, the sense of self-efficacy and to placebo and nocebo effects. And research on that is, is very clear that if you believe that your self-control is unlimited, like they literally have experiments where they ask people like, do you believe in this ego depletion model? And some people are just like, nah, that's nonsense. And these people perform much better on self-control tasks then people are like, oh yeah, no, that, that model to- totally applies to me. I know that if I'm, you know, I can feel my self-control waiting and the same same with low blood sugar. Like I can feel when I have low blood sugar, also nonsense, you can't feel that. Unless it's like really a medical concern, but in most experiments when they actually measure people do that, uh, they objectively <laughs> don't have low blood sugar mm-hmm. when they think that they do. And it's the same with self-control. Like, because there is no such thing as physically limiting you, in, in large part, it all comes down to the mind. So if you tell people with that they need more discipline, they're training their discipline. And I think that in large part, this also applies to all these cold shower things now and uh, waking up at 5 a.m. in the morning. I don't think these things have a lot of physical effect and waking up early is probably actually a bad idea if it costs you sleep. Mm-hmm. But if you wake up in the mind, you wake up at five and you have the mindset of, I'm gonna kill it today. And I wake up at five because I'm a bad mofo and you know nothing <laughs> can touch me then if you have that mindset, you're going to perform a lot better. Your self-control isn't going to wane easily. Whereas if you're like at 11, you're like, ah, snooze, and then 12 snooze, and then one snooze, and then you wake up and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm a lazy failure. I'm not doing anything in life. I can't do anything. Then, yeah, you're, you've already defeated yourself. Wow. Tips from Menno, bad mofo, Henselmans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I like that where a lot of it is how you frame things and... You know, if you, yeah, like I've always, I'm glad you brought this up because I've always kind of disagreed with just be, these people saying like, oh, I'm going to get up at 4 p, like 4 a.m. And then I'll train myself to get up at 3 a.m., <laughs> you know, just mm-hmm. just for the sake of getting up and, you know, putting yourself through the grind. In two months, I won't need any more sleep at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that brings me to the other, you know, thing that we were talking about, which is habits, where I think... Uh, once you realize that you can't just rely on self-control, like you can't just drop me in an ice cream factory and say like, okay, you're going to live here for the next two months while we put you through contest prep or whatever. How do you go about getting people to change their eating habits? Habits? The best way to change a habit is actually to replace it typically. You can, because the thing is when you actually have a habit, and people use this quite generally in the sense of something that they don't like to do, like and they're in the habit of doing something. But when it's actually a habit, it, it, uh, it happens involuntarily in response to a cue. So if you have the habit of snacking in front of the TV and then you may barely be aware that you're eating, like you're, you're watching TV and if there's any type of food in your environment, you're just going to grab it and eat it. And you've barely realized that, oh, I'm eating then it's really a habit, right? If it's like any other type of behavior, it's it's not necessarily habitual. So it's more like in a colloquial sense of a habit. And then just planning, et cetera, or all the tips we talked about apply there. But for actual habits, you typically cannot like erase the habit. Mm. So it's it often works better. And there's a recent review that's concluded this based on multiple studies, that it's easier to replace a habit than to really try to eradicate it. Because if you have that habit of, snacking while you're you're watching tv then it's very difficult to just tell yourself like i'm, I'm not going to do it or um it just 
mind over matter, because it happens in large part subconsciously. So you need to plan, you need to see, okay, can I either avoid the queue? Well, it's, if you're watching TV, then you could not watch TV, but let's say that you do want to do that, then that's, that's not possible. So you, you cannot avoid the queue in other situations that, that is actually very often useful. Then you can change the behavior that's triggered by the queue. So instead of snacking on bad foods, you could snack on good foods. Now, even better is to make it something that doesn't have calories, maybe just water or gum. You could you know, chew gum while you're watching TV. Mm. And that way, you've successfully dealt with the, the habit loop, like the cue triggering and understandable behavior, without having to eradicate the whole loop, because that's super difficult, whereas just replacing the behavior or eliminating the cue is a lot more effective, typically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that model where you think about the habit loop and realizing that you can like surgically go in and replace a certain part of it. Like if you, yeah, like the watching TV triggers you to want to eat. So you replace that with yeah, like having a healthy snack, like um, some fruit or something or chewing gum that you can still kind of give yourself that, um, that, you know, almost like the reward of the habit loop without exactly. having all the calories with it. And then, yeah, like how do you change people's, you know, eating patterns when, say, they have the habit of having a lot of like very high calorie foods or say like eating out with a lot of oily or you know, fried food and all that? Well, with social eating and with eating events in general out of the house, a big part, again, comes down to planning. Because if you're going to go to some restaurant and you don't have any plan, you're going to be hungry then you're putting yourself in a very bad position. And it works much better to try to avoid that, that bad situation rather than you know, trying to work on your, your um, working on your self-control or your discipline in these situations. It has very limited effectiveness because you can't actually train that, as we discussed. So it works better to A, make sure that you're, you're in a comfortable position. So don't, don't be hungry by the time you go out. What often works super well is to have like a big bowl of soup, for example, and umami flavor is particularly good because it has free glutamate, which is one of those hacks that actually seems to work. If it, it improves self-control to have free glutamate, and it also induces the feeling of satiety. So something like tomato soup or uh, mushroom soup, those are really good. There's a high, high free glutamate foods, mm. super satiating, low in calories. If you have like uh, on my website, I have a three minute tomato soup. It literally can be made in three minutes. And if you have like a bowl of that, maybe that's 100 calories, but then you arrive at the restaurant and you can eat more for the sensation of, uh, to be there with the company and the sensation of nice food, rather than being like, oh, I'm starving, I need to fill, um, you know, I need to fill myself up. And then if you're gonna do that with pizza, then you're gonna eat so much more. Mm. And the interesting thing is that because the, fee the, the goal of the eating is to satisfy the sensation of hunger and not to just, you know, shove food down, or it's not like you're shoving happiness into your body, although sometimes it may feel that way. At the end, it, because the happiness originates from the, uh, the, the satisfaction of the satiety, research finds that people that end up equally satiated end up equally happy. So if you consume a lot of soup before you go out, then you have a lot less pizza, maybe you, you order just a small one instead of a big one, you end up with far fewer calories and you end up equally happy. And that is the key part to realize you're not sacrificing anything by doing this. You're probably also cheaper off because you don't need to order as much food and the like, and you're not going to be hungry. So you feel better. You can focus on the company. It's just a win-win scenario. Another big thing that helps is to plan. Planning is always the key to success. Like, was the with Churchill, Roosevelt, Vic Churchill, um, failing to plan is planning to fail. That is true for dieting in almost every scenario, and also when going out. A lot of people have this idea that, oh, I'm, I'm successful whenever I plan my food, but I cannot be successful whenever I go out. Well, because you're not planning in these scenarios. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're on holiday or going out with friends, you can still plan. You can have a look at the menu beforehand. You can have a say, where are you going? If they're suggesting some crappy hamburger place where all they have is french fries, hamburger, McDonald's, Burger King, whatever, then talk to them beforehand to say, look, that's not my uh, my thing. Uh, I would like to go to some other thing. 
even better, be the first to suggest, hey, I found this new great place where they have whatever high-protein, lean food that you want or something. So just being a part of the conversation and planning what you're actually going to eat, looking at the menu beforehand, making these decisions when you're not distracted with people around you, noise, and hunger is so much more successful and also is going to make you make more rational, better choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that where, you know, thinking about planning things and almost having this deterministic approach to to going out to eat as well, where you said that, like, if you're going out with some friends, being the first to suggest it, right? Like having an idea of like, hey, guys, tonight, you know, or, or thinking about options that will give you the the choices that you want. And plus, plus, it'll probably make you pretty popular because no one can decide on what to eat. Mm, 100%. Yeah, most people, that's also with social pressure in general, a lot of people don't nearly care as much as people think. Like people will think, oh, I'm the the weirdo, I'm the fitness freak or whatever. People really don't care that much. And in large part, it's like awkwardness. If you you are awkward, it becomes awkward. If you are not awkward, (laughs) then there is no awkwardness because the awkwardness is that, that feeling that you're making. And it's very true with many things in fitness where if you're just like, yeah, this is how I eat. And typically the model I recommend for this is you either set the example, you lead or you detach. You're just either you're going to be like, look, this is how I eat. I eat healthfully. I eat lean. And this is why I do it. I love it. Uh, I suggest you do the same, actually, because I think it's a better way to live. You're going to live longer. You're going to feel better, etc. Now, if you don't want to be that person then you can detach. You can just be like, yeah, this is what I do. This is what you do. Fine, you know, we, we differ in this. You don't engage in the conversation. You just detach. But what many people do is they go halfway. Like they succumb to a little bit of social pressure, but then they try to lead a little bit. Like they're maybe they make some remarks, mm. but they don't follow up on that. And then you're just the annoying person. Maybe you're like passive aggressive, uh, even if you don't intend to be. But that doesn't work. If people know what your stance is, then this is like general social uh, psychology. You, you've gained idiosyncrasy credits, as it's called, to, to deviate from the group norm behavior. So if people, as long as people know where you stand and you're, they know you're, you're generally a good person, you're fun, et cetera, and you're not going to be like uh, super nasty about, hey, uh, you know, you're, you're fat and you're eating this and blah, 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 then uh, people are going to be fine with you eating healthily. Like it's super socially acceptable to eat healthily as yeah. long as you make it socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Where it's yeah, I was talking about my this with my friend the other day, where it's like it's, there's this social norm of like drinking, for example, mm-hmm. and it's like when everyone's downing a bunch of shots, they like they kind of look at you and expect you to. But if you make the precedent of like, hey, I'm like I'm doing this for like fitness, and I like I don't want to binge drink with you guys, like they're actually okay with it. You know, when when you make it that. Mm-hmm part of you and not you know not just be halfway and kind of like succumb to their pressure eventually exactly and you're going to probably find out that a lot of people are now going to come up to you and they're going to ask you like oh actually i didn't want to drink but um uh, i still ended up doing it how do you do it uh, what many people don't know is that i'm actually in a fraternity or i, I used to be in a fraternity and nice. i'm still and i never left it and they have hazing like it's it's a it's not like the traditional fraternity that has the bad reputation. They were much more chill and reasonable. Uh, but it was a fraternity with hazing, with military training, during the hazing, barely sleep, etc. All of those things. But I told them, like, okay, if you want me in your fraternity, because they invited me, uh, I told them, you know, I know how it's going to go, but I don't drink. And that's just, I don't care if it's hazing or whatever, I'm not drinking. So if you want me in your fraternity then it's going to be without drinking. And that's just, that's an ultimatum. That's just a hard rule. And they were like, oh, damn, nobody's ever said that before. And they were like, yeah, but, you know, can't you drink a little bit? Nope. Well, what if uh, if it's only during? Nope. And it's like, oh, well, okay. So, yeah, you don't drink. So Mendo doesn't drink. And everybody knew it. And it wasn't an issue. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Secret life of Menno. <laughs> the frat boy days <laughs> and then one last thing a big stumbling block people encounter when dieting is what comes after so how do you advise people transition of a fat loss phase or a mini cut i typically go straight into a lean bulk but conservatively 
I don't think you need to have like a maintenance phase or anything like that. Just be aware that when you come off the diet, your metabolism is relatively suppressed. Like your body weight has probably decreased, your energy intake has decreased. So your metabolism is gonna be a lot slower than it was before the diet. So you don't go back to the diet that you were on before. You don't certainly, you certainly don't bulk on the calories that you were bulking on before when you were five kilos lighter, not eating as much, weren't in a, um, didn't have adaptive thermogenesis, et cetera. So you just want to estimate, okay, now I'm say losing weight a little bit. I estimate that I'm in a 5% energy deficit. I want to be in a 10 and a 5% energy surplus. That means I can increase energy intake a good 10%, probably a little bit more because there's going to be adaptive thermogenesis in your favor this time, which is like metabolic adaptation. The more energy you consume, the higher your body weight, the faster your metabolism goes. So you could probably add 12, 13%. The more experience you have with making a switch, it gives you an idea of how adaptive your metabolism is. And based on that, you can determine how extra aggressive you, you become with this switch. But at least you can do the 10%. Or 12%, 13% probably is still super safe. And then adjust from there, see how much you can add, how fast your metabolism ramps up, and try to be in that 5% energy surplus. Because you don't want to overshoot. So I typically mm -hmm. do err on the side of ending up close to maintenance. Yeah. After your heartworn uh, fat loss, you don't want to get rid of that, just making a silly um, calorie estimation mistake. But there's also no need to like literally reverse diet or anything. Actually, wrote a paper, a scientific paper on metabolic damage, where we disproved this idea that you need to literally reverse diet because your metabolism is damaged. There's just adaptation. There's no damage taking place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Having a more forgiving stance on this. Yeah, the metabolism, where yeah, you can go back to eating. You just have to be careful about it and just not not overdoing it is, I think, the big issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this has been fun conversation, Menno. What's going on okay. with your own training? These um, I'm actually I'm getting into kickboxing, or I've gotten into kickboxing. Okay. Because after the, uh, the major back injury last year, uh, I was like, well, I've kind of completed the game of, of bodybuilding to begin with, and now I'm looking at for some... I mean, I'm still doing at least five days a week of uh, heavy strength training, still working on strength, size. As far as I can, I'm still gain, I'm still trying. But putting it on a slightly lower level and also doing martial arts at the same time, um, focusing more on, it's kind of ironic, but my strength training is focused a little bit more on longevity, whereas um, with martial arts, also adding some aerobic training. Uh, I have other physical goals to uh, to aspire to as well. So I'm also learning on how to, to balance these things out. So actually giving some, some new challenges, which I like a lot. I like it. Find Beno in the ring soon. Yep. And then, yeah. And then anything that you would like to plug on your side, I know that uh, people can go check out, obviously, the book that we spoke about today, The Science of Self-Control and Menno's personal train course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you, you haven't read the book yet and you like this conversation, you'll probably love the book, uh, either audiobook or a physical copy uh, or ebook. And you can find everything on my website, menohanselmans.com, and on YouTube these days. So uh, you can find a lot of videos as well for me there. Sick. Menno getting in on the YouTube game. All right. Well, it's mm. been a great to have you on again. Thanks for being on the show. Pleasure as always.